The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So for all the people who will be listening to this talk on the CD or internet, today is Wednesday, September 27, 2006. And tonight I'll be speaking about mindfulness of mind, continuing a series of talks on the Eightfold Path and focusing in on the part of the Eightfold Path that's about mindfulness practice. And I've been talking about mindfulness as part of the Eightfold Path now for a while, focusing in on the various foundations that the Buddha emphasized that we pay attention to. As a lot of you know, the Buddha's most well-known talk, the Satipatthana Sutta, or the talk on the four establishments or the four foundations of mindfulness, is uh, it's one of those things that as part of the folk religion in Asia, if someone is dying, generally somebody would go uh, to that person's room and chant or read this discourse. There's a kind of belief. It's not, you know, most practitioners, most monks and nuns wouldn't necessarily say that there's some magical quality in the discourse. But the idea is that there's so much common sense and wisdom in this teaching that it's a good thing to be around, even if it's in that superficial way of someone just reading it when we're not feeling well or when we're dying. And it's easy to dismiss this teaching on mindfulness because it just seems so appropriate. And it actually, in a casual way, we think we're already being really mindful. You know, that, oh, I've been paying attention all day. You know, why do I need to go here and talk about paying attention? So we're trying to discover that we're not really paying attention like we think we're paying attention. In fact, that's probably one of the first profound insights in this path of developing mindfulness, developing this quality of clear, open attention. One of the first real insights is we discover how distracted the mind is, how scattered it is, and how quickly, even after a moment of being present with the body or being present with the sound, how quickly we lose it. We lose the sense of here and now. And we're in our thoughts. We're basically lost in the story or the unfolding narration, unfolding talking in the mind. We're consumed by our various concepts and stories, spinning, spinning. And we might even have a story that I'm mindful, but that doesn't mean we're mindful. Just because we think we're mindful, just because we think we're a mindful person, just because we think we've been present all day long, that's just a thought in the mind right now. Do we know? Is there a knowing, a recognition? This is just a thought. That's a moment of mindfulness. The thought and the sort of identification with the thought isn't mindfulness. But knowing that a thought is just a thought that's mindfulness. So knowing that the feeling of touching as the breath comes in the nostrils, knowing touching as touching, that's mindfulness. 
So the four foundations again that we've been talking about lately, the first foundation, so the Buddha is saying as a set of instructions that somebody interested in cultivating the freedom that arises with insight, with understanding or wisdom, for someone interested in that wisdom, we want to establish mindfulness with the body. That means the five physical senses. So when we're standing up, there should be a knowing they're standing up. You know, there should be the, know the knowing of the sensations involved in standing up. When we're reaching, there's a knowing of that experience of reaching. When there's chewing, there's a knowing chewing. So that's the tactile experience. When we're sitting then, we're just knowing the sensation of the belly expanding and contracting or the subtle sensations in the body. If we're really exhausted, then there's a knowing of that physical experience of exhaustion in the body. If there's a lot of restlessness or energy in the body, then there's a knowing of it. So right now, for each of us, we can establish this knowing of the body. How's the belly? Is there a knowing of the belly right now? A knowing of the buttocks or the sit bones against the chair or cushion? A knowing of the air touching the skin? So we're knowing the pleasant and the unpleasant and all of the neutral sensations. And we're also knowing the second foundation. This is the second place we establish awareness, that simple knowing. And this is the area of feeling tone. So there's a knowing, and we can do this right now. Like, is the, for example, the physical experience of the body, is it pleasant predominantly or unpleasant? or neutral. So just notice. Don't try to think about what it is. Just notice, is there a pleasantness that you can clearly see in the moment? Or is there an unpleasantness that can be clearly seen in the moment? And if there isn't a clear pleasantness or a clear unpleasantness, then it's neutral. Don't try to figure out what it is. Just notice what's being known. Either pleasantness is being known, or unpleasantness is being known, or it's neutral. Meaning, you're not sure, there's not a clarity about it being either pleasant or unpleasant. That's what neutral means. Somewhere in between, or just not knowing. That's the second place that we train to have mindfulness, to keep bringing mindfulness into the experience of the feeling tone that's predominant in the moment, whether it's the feeling tone of the body or the feeling tone of whatever's in the mind. You know, is the, is the memory that's alive in the mind right now, is it pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? And then the third establishment of mindfulness, the third place we practice establishing a sense of presence is knowing the mind. Using the mind to know the mind using the quality of attention to know what's present in the mind. How is the mind colored right now? And we can just look right now as I'm talking. So just see, is the mind colored by boredom or some form of aversion, some form of irritation, some form of anxiousness or uh, disliking, whether it's disliking the talk or disliking 
the situation in the room or disliking the sensations in the body now. It doesn't matter. But is there that coloring in the mind, that kind of pushing out or pushing away or striking out or withdrawing? All the different flavors or any of the different flavors of aversion. Or maybe the opposite is present. Maybe there's a sense of a quality of kindness or patience or goodwill in the mind right now. Kind of gratitude of being here or just a sense of uh, happiness being around these people. So the opposite of aversion. Or is there a kind of greediness in the mind, like really wanting to understand can be one kind of greediness. Or really, really wanting to be noticed by people around you, that's a form of greediness. Or really wanting to get home, that's a kind of greediness, like wanting the hour to be done. So just notice that there's a, that energetic leaning forward in the mind, like wanting something, wanting things to be different than they are. If only, then I'll be happy. Something like that going on in the mind. Or the opposite, which is a kind of generosity, like uh, just a letting go. I mean, here, you may not be thinking about generosity in the sense of wanting to give your life away to Dharma, to Buddhist practice, you know. But it may be the generosity or the opposite of greediness may manifest right now as the feeling of renunciation. So the opposite of greediness can be a complete contentment with what we have right now in this moment. That quality of simplicity or renunciation or contentment is the opposite of greediness. Like just this feeling like this is enough. It's just enough to be here, to have a body, to have this mind, to have this experience. This is the opposite of greediness. You can call it non-greed or you can call it contentment or renunciation or simplicity. But it's a wholesome state as opposed to greediness. And then there's the knowing the mind, using the mind to know the mind, to see if there's the presence or absence of delusion or clarity. Are we in a fog filled with doubt or in a fog filled with dullness, inertia, in a fog filled with restlessness? Or is there a nice balance in the mind where there's an alertness and a relaxation and a simple understanding that this is how it is now. And we can be clear, we can be non-deluded even when confusion is the predominant state. It's possible It's possible to be completely undiluted, non-deluded in the experience of confusion. So if my mind's confused, then there's sort of two possibilities. Either I'm identified with the confusion And then there's a sense of, I'm Mark, and I'm confused. I don't know what to do. I don't know what's going on. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I watch my breath here or here? Or there's an understanding. Confusion's like this. But that's not confusion. That's mindfulness, which is really wholesome. And the object of mindfulness is the experience of confusion. But mindfulness of confusion isn't confusion. 
there's a story about uh, in the time of the Buddha there was a monk and uh, whenever a disturbing thought he, he was really into this practice of using the mind to know the mind and as he was going about his day whenever a disturbing thought or some mind state arose he would just stop whatever he was doing and uh, just be mindful meditate open know how the mind is and then whatever it was that was disturbing or difficult when it passed away or when he was able to see it clearly then he continued doing whatever it was he was doing and so all the lay people around him thought that he was just getting old and you know forgetting where he was or maybe he lost something and he was trying to remember where he left it um, but he was just doing this practice of stopping when the mind gets confused or when the mind when there's not clarity of how the mind is stopping until there again is clarity oh the mind is like this this is how it is now this mind and then continuing and that's a wonderful thing we can do now maybe we can't always stop pull over on the freeway okay oh yeah the mind's like this and <laughs> get back on but we can have that intention to keep coming back to to um, appreciate how important it is to know the mind to use the mind to know the mind of course this is I think I mentioned last uh, Wednesday this is graduate level mindfulness practice it's much easier to know this is how the body is the body's like this the mind is much more slippery harder to see harder to know but still it can be our intention to know the mind to use the mind to know the mind there's an old story in uh, Islam there's a whole tradition a mystical tradition in Islam uh, the Sufi tradition and uh, there's this uh, well-known figure in Islam uh, Nasiruddin or Nasiruddin sometimes it's pronounced uh, the Sufi mystic kind of known for his crazy wisdom and I, I saw the other day on the internet I was reading about him and in Turkey and other places in town squares they have a statues of this kind of mythical character it's not sure whether he actually lived but they think maybe there was a historic person this this character is based on from like the 12th or 13th century and they show him on a donkey riding it backwards holding the tail of the donkey um, so there's a story of him outside searching for something he'd lost like a jewel or something important outside of his house and there's like you know one of those kerosene lanterns there in the city and he's searching and eventually his neighbors come out and they're all looking and eventually one of his neighbors asked him, now where exactly did you lose this jewel and he pointed off into some dark corner of the woods and they said well why are we looking out here he said well there's a good light here and so this is a little bit like our tendency not to watch the mind just because it's difficult we tend not to pay attention to the mind we don't know how to look at the mind so we just avoid it so even though it's difficult challenging to to um, to understand how to use the mind to know the mind still we need to make effort even if it feels sloppy even it we get confused that's fine then it's all of a sudden clear oh confusion 
Then we know the mind. The mind knows the mind. Oh, confusion's like this. Impatience is like this. Feeling dumb is like this. You know, feeling like I'm a failure is like this. In the Buddhist text, in the discourses, the Buddha says, ever virtuous and wise, with mind collected, reflecting on oneself, ever mindful, one crosses the flood so difficult to cross. Reflecting on oneself. In another place, I think in the Dhammapada, the collection of verses from the Buddha, he says, if you hold yourself dear, meaning if you care about your life, watch yourself well. So in Buddhist practice, there's a real, probably more than anything else, what is um, encouraged is a kind of vigilance. Being vigilant, watchful, not in a tight way, but in an interested way, being vigilant, watchful of the mind. So even though, you know, when you come and you, you sit through a guided meditation, even though there's a lot of talk about feeling the body, feeling the sensations, being mindful of pain, being mindful of the breath coming in and out, it's because we understand that it's not easy to turn the attention directly to the mind. So we go to kindergarten and we train with what's relatively easy. It's not even easy to be mindful of the body, but it's just a little bit easier to be mindful of the mind, or maybe a lot easier. So we do that as a basic training. As I mentioned in the guided sit tonight, we bring a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of commitment or wholeheartedness to being mindful of the body. Just the obvious sensations first, like the breath moving in the body or the experience of pain or just the uprightness in the body when we're sitting or other obvious physical experience, including hearing when it's obvious or when it's predominant. And then later, we start to experience the subtle sensations in the body, like a calm, subtle breath or subtle pain or subtle pleasantness in the body, like tingling or, or the feeling of bliss in the body the kind of light vibration or buoyancy in the body. Right? That's harder to pay attention to. It requires a more refined uh, quality of attention or mindfulness. But all the while, while we're training in being mindful of the body and using something skillful like anchoring the attention with the breath or sweeping the attention through the body from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, from the top to the bottom, there are many different techniques. So even while we're doing that basic training, that basic mindfulness training, of course, this basic training is going to be interrupted all the time by strong mind states, by compelling thoughts, by disturbing memories, by fascinating fantasies, right? All the time. So even though we're committed to this basic training, to developing this quality of attention using the body, we're going to have ample opportunity to do our best being mindful of the mind every time this basic training is disturbed by some strong mind state, whatever it is, fantasy, memory, 
planning, worrying. So then when we're disturbed, when the basic training, basic mindfulness of the body is disturbed, be very okay about letting go of that basic training in that moment. Take the kind of commitment, the kind of confidence you have in mindfulness as being wholesome, as being a good thing at all times. Take that confidence and completely turn the attention to the mind. Even if it's complete failure, meaning it's like you turn to the mind and you don't know what you're doing or you don't know where to look or you don't even know where the mind is. Just have the intention to use the mind, to use mindfulness to know the mind. And you can even, if you want, you can try, see if this is useful. At times you can even use the phrase, the mind is like this. And when you say the word this in your mind, then in that moment, open to the mind. The mind is like this. Fortunately, the body, the subtle experience in the body, parallels the mind. So, for example, if there's anxiety in the body, generally the anxiety is also alive vibrationally in the body. Or if there's a lot of hoping, oh, wouldn't that be nice? You know, if I got this job, or if this person ends up loving me, or, you know, I become enlightened. So we have this sort of hopeful thought, and that's alive in our body too. You know, maybe there's a kind of restless excitement in the body. And we can notice that, and it makes it easier to know the mind if we know the subtle experience of the body. So, so don't, don't, don't assume being mindful of the mind is going to be clear like sensations in the body are clear. It's very ephemeral. It's almost like it's gone before you get there. The thought is gone before. It's almost like you're noticing the residual or almost the shadow of what was just there, the telltale signs of what was just in the mind. Because the mind, as opposed to the body, moves very quickly. I mean, the body experience also moves quickly, but not nearly as quickly as the mind. So we could have been dwelling on some scary thought about, let's say, you know, let's say we have fear of flying and we've got to take a trip. And there we are, we're meditating, but we're lost in thoughts. Oh, I've got to go on this trip. And then all of a sudden we know it. Well, all the content will disappear, but there will be this sort of telltale sign of having been anxious. It will still, the anxiety will still be alive in the body, even though the content, like the image of the airplane or the thoughts about, um, oh, I hate planes. You know, or I've never liked planes ever since that really bumpy ride, that memory. Even all of that content might disappear. The residual is still there in the body. And we can just go, oh, anxiety is like this. So it's even okay to note it even though the content is pretty much gone. So we're just noting that it was there. We drop into the body, we feel it energetically in the body. If there's if we can be with whatever's left over in a neutral, clear way, so we're not getting hooked by whatever's left over, then that's fine. Then we just come back to the anchor, to the basic training. But if it's still alive, still seductive, then just stay right there with whatever's left over, with that feeling of anxiety or uneasiness in the body, whatever it is, or aversion or tightness, maybe tightness in the throat or nausea in the belly or tension in the shoulders or contraction in the head. Just notice whatever it is and try to bring that clear, loving, accepting, forgiving, patient acceptance.
the mind, body is like this now. It's like this. Can this be okay? And just stay there until it's not compelling anymore. Don't begin the basic training until there's, there's some sense of presence, non-reactivity with whatever's left over. And sometimes it disappears so fast, there's a feeling of confusion, like, what was that? What just happened? Then just notice that sense of confusion or doubt, like, did I miss something? Should I return to the breath? Or is there something here? Just notice that lack of sureness, that uncertainty. Oh, this is uncertainty. And it's like this. This is not knowing. And it's like this. Not knowing is like this. I've always wondered what not knowing was. No, this is not knowing. So we just notice. Everything is just something to be known. Any experience of our life, any moment, is simply something to be known. And if we're not clear, then know that we're not clear. Oh, not clear. Clear. It's like this. Confusion is like this. So that may be a, a, a relatively frequent recognition when we're training and being mindful of the mind, of not being clear what the mind is, how the mind is right now. And in this way, we really uh, learn to take care of ourselves in a deep way. There's so much healing that happens just uh, in the beginning stages of understanding that the mind can be used to know the mind. One of the first ways that's so healing is just to get the basic habit structure of our mind. I think I mentioned last week briefly that generally we tend to fall into one or three types, personality types, at least this is how it's described in the Buddhist tradition. That generally speaking, again, this is just a generality, our mind is either a greedy type, an aversive type, or a deluded, spacey type. And it's just nice to know because the more we know the basic habit energy of our mind, the less likely we're going to be surprised by it, confused by it, captivated by it, identified with it. If we don't know our mind, then we're going to take it personally and we're going to react to it and get identified with it and we'll stop knowing it. We won't, it won't be possible to know it. We can't both be caught up and know it at the same time. So that could be our homework this week. And it really leads to this fourth foundation, which I want to begin talking about tonight. The whole idea of being vigilant, uh, really committed to use the mind to know the mind, is that we, we really start to see how some habits of our mind lead to suffering. I think of monopoly. Go directly to jail. Do not stop. <laughs> okay? And that's kind of how it is. It's like some mind states go directly to hell. They don't stop anywhere. And some mind states go directly to heaven, to pleasant states. And we really want to get that. And that, seeing that is the fourth establishment, the fourth place the Buddha teaches us to pay attention. We pay attention to the body. That's our basic training. Paying attention to the body helps us develop steadiness and non-reactivity and fearlessness and sensitivity with attention. 
with the quality of attention. Then we start learning feeling tone, like this is the next challenging level, to be able to see unpleasantness without reacting to unpleasantness, to see pleasantness without reacting to it, to see neutralness without ignoring it. So these, these are all kind of uh, essential training ground, training places. Then we use the mind to know the mind. And then once we're able to know the mind, so know that there's greed, greediness in the mind or generosity in the mind, then we watch it. Then we can have some continuity and we see that greediness goes directly to hell. Generosity goes directly to heaven. You know, generosity, renunciation, letting go, simplicity leads to happiness, leads to ease. Greediness, craving, lusting, wanting, that leads to contraction and to heaviness and to suffering, to stress. And we just start getting it. So this is really the fourth foundation. Is It's all about wisdom. So because there's continuity in the mind knowing the mind, then it opens the possibility of the fourth foundation, which is using the mind to see how, how the mind is, whether it leads to happiness, to peace, to ease, to letting go, to freedom, or whether how the mind is leads to contraction and weight and suffering. So in a sense, we're discerning the skillfulness or the unskillfulness. So we're not just seeing the greed, but we're actually seeing directly, moment to moment, how the identification with greed, if it's there, leads to suffering. Or the letting go of the identification leads to relief and ease and freedom. We're really getting how a suffering human being arises, how a free, non-attached, happy human being arises. We're just getting the lawfulness of suffering and, and happiness. And boy, this really strengthens our commitment. When we see, it's like what arises in our mind is, my goodness, there's a path. Because so much of the time we get stuck, I'm sure you recognize this, we get stuck in like, like this feeling, I'm happy to work. I'm happy to sort of do something with my life, but I don't know what to do. You know? We think about, well, I could meditate, but then we go, yeah, but I just meditate and I just spin. I mean, what's the point? Or I just fall asleep. So it's like we don't believe there's actually a path. That's what keeps us from working. Human beings don't mind working. I mean, just see, just look at like Olympic athletes or business people or mothers, you know, taking care of their kids or parents taking care of their kids. I mean, human beings have an amazing capacity to work. But what human beings won't do is work if they don't think it leads anywhere. I mean, human beings will work really hard for really stupid things. Like, think about how hard people work to get to the top of Mount Everest or to, you know, kayak from here to there. People work really hard just for the, the joy of being able to say to their friends when they get home, you know, I, I kayak from here to there, <laughs> you know, or I you know, did this thing, or I did that, or I knitted this quilt, or this uh, sweater. So human beings are willing to do things for very little reward. 
So when we start to get a sense of the reward of using the mind to see the mind and using the mind to see how happiness or peace arises and how suffering arises, we are filled with tremendous energy to start to use our life more systematically. And I don't mean using our whole life to meditate. I mean all the moments of our life. It's not we have to be in a formal meditation. Our whole life can be this training ground of using our life to know the mind, to see the mind, whatever we're doing. There's this ongoing turning the, this quality of attention back in on itself, using this quality of attention. And we're still paying attention to driving and talking and listening and reaching and all the sort of parts of living a normal life. But what's really going on is we're in this university. We're using our life as an opportunity to, uh, to know the mind, to know the heart. It's interesting, you know, when you, when you, if you read a lot of the discourses of the Buddha and the stories from the time of the Buddha, if nothing else, it's a very compelling story. They're very compelling stories of human beings, monks and nuns and lay people, you know, just really putting forth a lot of commitment, uh, feeling very, very strongly that this is a wholesome thing for human beings to do. And, and just reading about the Buddha and some of the other chief teachers at the time, like Sariputta, and to hear that their last words were all about this word apamata, which means vigilance or heedfulness or wholeheartedness. This is like in their last sentence, what they said to the nuns and monks and lay people around them is, be heedful. Don't waste your life. Don't slip into a life of distraction, of just getting by, of pursuing things that don't really matter too much. Use your life, use your mind to know the mind. Use every moment possible to, to learn the next thing you're ready to learn. Using the heart to learn to know the heart or using the mind to know the mind. There's a, uh, a wonderful collection of essays by a bunch of uh, female Buddhist teachers. It's called Being Bodies. And uh, Darlene Cohen, who is, I don't think she is anymore, but she used to be the co-abbess of the San Francisco Zen Center. I think she's semi-retired now. And uh, she wrote one of the articles. And it's... Uh, She's talking about, in this article, she's had a lot of physical suffering, illness, physical illness and pain in her life and, of course, then in her meditation practice. And so she's talking about how it's very easy to want to use our meditation practice and, more generally, our spiritual life to heal ourselves. So we're actually, we turn our meditation practice uh, into a tool to overcome adversi adversity like the adversity of physical pain or physical illness or the adversity of emotional, unfinished emotional stuff, right? 
And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a limited, it's limited. And so I just want to read this section because part of the challenge of using the mind to know the mind is to really keep it at that refined level that we're using the mind just to know the mind, not to fix the mind, but just to understand the mind. So when we're using the mind to know the mind, then when something really repugnant arises, something very despicable, something we're ashamed about, we're still just using the mind to know the mind. Like I think maybe a couple weeks ago I read a story about how Ajahn Sumedho, this very well-known and respected Western monk, Western Buddhist monk, after sort of many years of practice when he was an abbot and a leader in the, in the sort of world of Western Buddhism, he started having a lot of jealousy come up. You know, just being jealous of less senior monks, you know, who maybe seemed sharper than him or holier than him or, you know, more tranquil than him or who, whatever, you know, who knows what was coming up in his mind. And just these very strong states of jealousy. And of course he felt so ashamed because a Buddhist monk, especially a senior Buddhist monk, should not be jealous. So, of course, the instinct, the habit energy, was to suppress it. And that just created a lot of suffering. Because not only was there jealousy, but there's all this energy about suppressing it. Not only not letting other people see it or know it, but not letting himself see it or know it. And he just talked about getting wrapped up in a big knot. Until eventually, after a long time, realizing that the path is to use the mind to understand this is how it is. Jealousy is like this. And it's actually a relief. I mean, it's really painful to sit right in the middle, to be open to any afflictive state like jealousy. But it's also a relief not to have to do anything about it. To come to that understanding that this path that we're investing in isn't about not being jealous. It's about understanding jealousy is like this or any afflictive state. So this is Darlene Cohen talking about working with pain in illness. So it's true that you can use mindfulness practice to achieve your health goals. You may even get rid of your disease or injury. But if you practice mainly to get rid of your suffering or restore an ailing body to function rather than to express your life and your nature, it is a very narrow and vulnerable achievement. And I'm skipping about here. So a little later she says, we must penetrate our anguish and pain so thoroughly that illness and health lose their distinction. So first when we see pain, you know, like if you have some sort of physical issue in your life, of course, turning toward that pain, it's going to trigger the thought that I have this disease and I want to be healed. I don't want to be sick anymore. I don't want to have cancer anymore. I want that cancer to go away into remission. It's going to trigger that, those thoughts. Of course it's going to trigger that th those thoughts. We don't need to judge ourselves because those thoughts are being triggered. We let those thoughts be those thoughts. We recognize, oh, that's wanting, that's craving, and it's like this. In a neutral way, we understand, of course, craving is like this. And then we turn back to the actual feeling of whatever is happening in the moment. 
and we try to get right into that place so thoroughly present that we're, we sort of lose the wanting to be healed or the fear of not being healed. So we're turning so much toward the unpleasantness of the fear or the unpleasantness of the physical state that we lose that story of being a somebody who's afraid of this or who wants that. So I'll just continue reading now. Our relief from pain and our healing have to be given up again and again to set us free from the desire to be well. Otherwise, getting well is just another hindrance to us, just another robber of the time we have to live, just another idea that enslaves us, like enlightenment. Fortunately for our way-seeking mind, recurring illness is like a villain stomping on our fingertips as we cling desperately to our healthy, functioning bodies. So that's why in spiritual life there are so many metaphors about letting go. Sometimes I tell this funny story um, about somebody being chased by a tiger and because they're distracted they run right off of a cliff but fortunately they're able to grab a vine as they're falling down and they're hanging there and the tiger's right above you know looking over the edge just waiting for them to climb up and they look below and hundreds of feet below is a boulder field you know and they're standing there and there's a little rat gnawing away at the vine <laughs> and the person just loses it and screams oh God please help me and God answers says, yes, my son. Oh, thank you, God. Please save me. And God says, okay, just do what I say. And the person says, of course, whatever. And God says, let go. <laughs> and the person says, is there anybody else up there? <laughs> because we don't want to let go. But fortunately, in our life, we get in this place where there's no choice. We, you know, we find ourselves in a relationship with our, you know, our partner or our baby or our job where there's no escape. Like we can't quit the job because we owe $5,000 for our car or something like that. Or we've got to feed our kids or we have to, you know, or we can't leave this relationship or we, you know, can't get rid of our baby. So there we are in this situation and we could spend a lot of time spinning about only if then I'd be happy. And that's just like self-torture. Or we can let go. Let go doesn't mean that we change the circumstance. We let go of the resistance. This is how it is now. It's already this way. It's already this way. So we let go of any denial any reactivity to this is how it is. And then we let our, it doesn't mean being passive, it means our response then doesn't come out of reactivity, it comes out of really being intimate in our life, present, accepting, this is how it is. And then we respond, and we're much more creative in how we respond because we're not responding from our fear, from our craving. And I think this is what she's talking about here. The problem with being preoccupied with your health is that you get into this illusion of progress. Am I getting better 
Am I getting worse? The reality is that illness and wellness are opposites on a continuum of preoccupation with health. As the opposites, and as opposites, they have the same nature, like life and death, love and hate. When we pluck wellness out of the void, illness always comes with it. Right? And this is how it is. So we could spend our life identifying with the different things we imagine, like the perfect future. Ah, if we pluck that, then we're afraid if it doesn't happen. Or if we pluck out, oh, I don't want that, right? Then we're afraid if it happens. Then we suffer if it happens. Or then we have to grasp at the opposite. So whenever we turn something into a self-centered drama, whenever we relate to the mind with delusion instead of clarity, illusion means delusion means attachment, seeing it from a self-centered point of view. When we see the mind from a self-centered point of view, that's the opposite of being mindful of it. Mindfulness of, mean, mindfulness of the mind means we're seeing the mind as natural phenomena. We're just seeing it as something, thoughts, images. It's just what it is, being known. So there's not confusion. It's just what it is. So she ends. I'll just read a little bit more. This leads to despair and discouragement, alternating with euphoria and encouragement, and condemns you to a life of disappointing setbacks, alternating with happy swells of improvement. Right? And we're, we seem to, you know, I think because we don't know an alternative, we, we sort of accept this roller coaster of despair and hope and joy. And so a lot of us are suspicious of the evenness of peace, the evenness of, of uh, wisdom, the wisdom of acceptance, the wisdom of dispassion, of letting go. We think that the way to relate to life is with a charge, like, I'm a, I don't want that, I don't want this, that's not what I signed up for. This is what I signed up for. This is what I want. This is what will make me happy. So don't force this alternative view, but explore it by using the mind to know the mind. And this is really the fourth foundation, and I'll talk about this for the next few weeks, because what we're really getting is plucking happiness and, I mean, joy and suffering out getting attached to the joy, being afraid of the suffering, that roller coaster, we can actually see how it's all suffering. That all that drama is suffering, and it doesn't make sense. It really doesn't fit how it is, the way it is. It's just a bad habit. And it's a rut we get ourselves in, and the rut reinforces itself. Drama reinforces drama. Hope reinforces fear. Fear reinforces hope. And we, this is what the Buddha means by the cycles of suffering or samsara that get repeated over and over again. So this week in practice, you might want to, you know, besides using the basic training of being mindful of the body, mindfulness of the breath, then use the mind to know the mind, and in particular, See if you can discern 
how various qualities of the mind lead to suffering, to contraction, to weight, and various mind states, qualities of the mind lead to ease, the ease of letting go, the ease of non-attachment, the ease of non-clinging. And just see if you can start to get how the mind creates a life of suffering or a moment of suffering, and how the, the mind, the way of relating, can lead to a moment of freedom, of non-suffering, non-clinging. So I'll leave it here so that we have time to hear from some people about what you're noticing in your practice or any questions you have about what was said tonight or about what you're noticing in your practice. What comes to mind? Selena. Um, I was just wondering, is it possible to have a problem with wanting too much of the non-suffering versus the suffering once yeah, of course, yeah. And so, but that's okay because, <clears throat> so once we get the potency, w- once we understand uh, how we can fall into suffering, you know, just be by a habit, the momentum of our habits, we can get a little tight. It can feel kind of dramatic, like, I better be very careful. And then we'll just notice that tightness as being unhealthy, unskillful. It's just fear. Fear of making a mistake is like this. That fear, that tension doesn't actually help the vigilance. The vigilance needs to be relaxed. And I know when we hear that word vigilance, I know I get a little tight, but actually that's not what the word means. Vigilance just means to be awake, like an all-night vigil, you know, to stay awake. 